All right, keep your hands up until the ushers come around, and we'll, hopefully we'll get to you there with a booklet. Okay, well, I'm excited to be with you this morning, because uh, the Lord, I think, has a, a message for you. He loves you so much, it's incredible. I've been talking to him about you this morning, and he's just, oh, he's head over heels and crazy in love with you. And so I'm excited to be able to bring, hopefully, a message from the Lord for you this morning. And a couple things before we get there, though, I want to show you where, oops, I can't see that up there. Can you guys make sure I see what's up here, up there? Because that'll throw me off a little bit. I'm easily confused, Jesse, and I just am. So a reminder that the kiosks out front will help you make a connection to the three aspects of 2020, Vision 2020, uh, where we, you know, we're talking about um, transforming a region, planning a church, and expanding a dream. Not, not in that order, but if you can go out and uh, please connect with those folks out there, it'd be great. I also want to remind you, too, that Zeal Church, uh, the church plant in New York that Alex and Shannon Gilbert and team are doing, uh, has a vision night coming up on October uh, 6th, right? Is that what that says, the 6th? Yeah. So please, if you live in the York region and you're trusting the Lord to guide you, be praying about it. Come and hear the vision from Alex for that church plant and then make a decision about how the Lord would have you move. So I want you to take a quick look at this video. It's just a little snapshot of our time together last time at Suburban High School Then I want to talk to you. Let's watch this together. Just by show of hands, how many were with us last time at that um, time together? Great. How many of you can be there today at 4 o'clock? Okay, praise the Lord. If you can do something to be there today, please do, okay? We've gone from three churches to six churches. We have no idea what to expect. We didn't know what to expect last time we met. We didn't honestly. And there was like four or 500 people there, and it was amazing. It was an amazing time for the glory of God. This is an incredible movement of God to start bringing together the church, the one true church of Jesus Christ, to transform the region. And what I've been saying is that there are principalities and places of darkness that are ruling over the region, and these, these, these principalities will not be torn down until the church of Jesus Christ is unified. So I'm, I'm praying that you as a body will respond and that you will support this effort. We now have six pastors, um, Pastor Tony Cicino in Orlando Medina, but Pastor Oscar Rustam from Mount Zion Community Church, uh, Luis Sanchez uh, from the First Spanish Assembly of God Church in York, and then Pastor Jeff Slemp um, from Gates United Methodist Church over here. All of us are coming together, our worship teams are coming together, and we're trusting the Lord that he will be the one that continues to break down the walls, okay? So would you join me in praying? For that time now. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness in guiding us. Lord, we don't really know what we're doing, but our eyes are on you, and you are the one who prompts according to your word and your spirit and your people for us to move in a way in which you will transform the region, in which you will reach more and more lives with the life-transforming power of the gospel. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would move in us to support this, this time together, and Lord, that we would come together in a, in a spirit of worship and in truth to actually glorify your name. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. We do pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so um, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in this series called Growing Deeper Still, and I'm taking my jacket off so I can get real serious with you here this morning, okay? I'm excited this morning to be talking to you in our second week about rest. And if you've been with us, you kind of know that we've been focusing primarily on this scripture, which is out of Isaiah 61. Would you please say it out loud with me? They will be called oaks of righteousness. Yeah, I just wanted to drop out and see how you'd do. You say it again without me. Go ahead. 
So today, we're going to focus on this word righteous. It's not what you think it is. A lot of people, when they hear the word righteous, they go, oh, don't she think she's so righteous? You know, you know don't, he, he thinks so. He's so righteous. He's got it all together. His, his nose is in the air. You often think of that word in a way that it doesn't really mean what you think it does. Righteous does not mean having it all together. Righteous does not mean being perfect for us. Righteous simply means being in right relationship with God. If you are in right relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have a whole new identity in him. This is what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. And today, I want to talk a lot about what it means to be righteous and what it means to rest in your righteousness. Now, if you've looked at the back of your booklet, there's a whole list of questions there. Questions that Jesus asked, I think I have maybe 50 of them in there or something like that. If you haven't looked, I would really encourage you to look in the back of your booklet at that list of questions that Jesus asked. There's some really good ones in there. You know, one of them is, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want me to do for you? That's a great question that we could hear Jesus ask us today. Here's another one. Do you really want to get well? He said this to a guy who was a paralytic laying in his own stuff for years and years and years. And he comes up to the dude and he goes, do you really want to get well? Now, most people would say, Jesus, why are you even bothering to ask that question? It should be a no-brainer. But when the Lord asks a question, the question is always legitimate. Always. Maybe this guy was just comfortable staying the way that he was. How about you? Let me ask you another thing here. When God asks you a question, it's never for his benefit. He always knows the answer already. It's for your benefit. When the Lord asks you a question, he's wanting to stir your heart and stir your mind so you'll start responding to him in such a way that you'll look at the root of the issue and that your roots will go deeper into the soil of God's love, that you would be an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Here's a question that has just been haunting me, that Jesus asks. He asks this question, do you know what it is that I have done for you? Do you know what it is that I have done for you? Now look, I want to say, yes, Lord, I know, but I don't know. Lord, I know, I know a little bit about what you've done for me, but I honestly think this, if we really saw fully what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, you would not be able to remain in your seat. You would not, you would not ever have a gloomy day. You would be like, oh my gosh, I think that you would be completely unhinged for the glory of God, amen? If you truly knew what Jesus Christ did for you. Now here's the truth, all of us are in process and all of us are understanding on a deeper level what Jesus has done for us. But I know this today, if you are in Christ Jesus, he has made you righteous. Can you say this after me? I am righteous by the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ gave you his righteousness and he took upon himself your sin. The scripture says something scandalous. It says that Jesus Christ became sin, that you and I would become the righteousness of God. He didn't just take your sin upon himself. He actually became your sin and died on a cross to pay the penalty that you and I could never pay. Why? Because he loves you that much. He's so deeply passionate for you. He died for you. Jesus, you have made me righteous by the power of your blood shed on the cross for me. Because I am in right relationship with you, nothing will ever separate me from your love. Nothing in all of creation. We can rest in that truth. Why? Because it's part of God's plan for us. As we talked about last time, this little kind of um, grid is what we're following now. And I want you to understand, life with Jesus is never a formula. These are just some principles. These are just some principles that come from his person and his word and his spirit. And basically says this, we rest in God so we can risk in God. In order to be formed by God so we can be found in God by others. It's four simple words. Just say the words with me. Rest, risked, formed, and found. We rest in God so we can risk in God. In order to be formed by God, to be more like Jesus, so that we can be found in God by others. I've been praying this little pray, phrase like almost every morning, every evening. I've been journaling over it for months now. 
And one of the ways I like to say this is I just like to put God's love in there. I rest in God's love so I can risk in God's love. So I'm formed by God's love so I can be found wildly in love in, with God by others. So, so here's the way, like I'm resting in his love, why? So that I can risk in his love, so that I'm formed by his love, so that when people see me, they go, oh my gosh, that dude is wildly in love with God. I want to look like someone, I want to be someone who's wildly and passionately in love with God. How about you? You see, I just, I just want to be dripping with the love and grace of Jesus so that when people encounter me, they go, surely that man has been with Christ. How about you? So last week we talked about this little phrase that Jesus says in the scriptures. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he said, Jesus says, look, come to me. You got to take off the yoke of the world. You got to take off the yoke of religion. And you have to kind of come to me and learn from me. All of us need to learn to rest in Christ. This does not come naturally to you. But he will take off the burdens and replace them with himself. We looked at Psalm 62 last week, and I hope that you're praying this psalm because it's a very, very powerful one for sure. He says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Can you say that with me? He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. We're going to have to wake you up a little bit this morning, Grace Fellowship Church. He is my fortress. I will, never be shaken. I will never be shaken. You see, that's a deeply rooted oak tree. That's an oak tree that's rooted in the love of God in such a way that nothing will shake you. And after having done everything, you will stand. Now, we defined soul rest this way last time. We said that it's shifting our attention long enough to God to claim in any given situation his presence, his promises, and his providence, which is already ours in Christ Jesus. So today we're going to talk about resting in our new identity. I'm going to pray again for us. Please join me. Father, thank you so much for making us righteous in you. Lord, I pray now that you would light a fire in our hearts, that you would fan the flames, that it would become a roaring blaze for you. And God, I pray that you would give me your words and your spirit, for I am your son. I thank you for your faithfulness to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was August 31st in 2004 at 5 a.m. when a Burger King employee in Richmond Hill, um, Georgia, found a man unconscious, naked, and sunburnt lying by a dumpster of the restaurant. This guy had three depressions in his skull. He had been here to been blunt force trauma, is what they determined, and he had red ant bites on his body as well. After discovering him, the employees called emergency services, and the EMS took him to the local hospital, and eventually he regained consciousness. But when they took him to the hospital, he realized very quickly that he had developed full and complete total amnesia. The man did not know who he was. Well, you know, obviously thought people would say, well, we'll go ahead and put out his picture. We'll get it out there. Somebody will identify him. And so they put it out there locally, and nobody identified the guy. They put it out there across the whole state, and nobody identified the guy. They put it out there across the whole nation, and nobody identified the guy. Dr. Phil put the guy on his show, and nobody called the guy out. Nobody knew who this dude was. His nurse, who was caring for him, took it upon herself as a personal mission to help this guy find out who he was. And for 11 years, this man did not know who he was. They did DNA testing. They did all kinds of testing. And after 11 years, finally they found out that his parents and his family had all died. And there was one person who identified him. And he was able to make a transition kind of back into his old identity. But can you imagine if this happened to you? Can you imagine if you're here this Sunday and you come to church and you know who you are, you know your family, you know your friends, you know your past and your present, you have plans for your future, but something traumatic happens in your life 
And tomorrow you wake up and for unforeseeable future years, you have no clue who you are. Your identity has been completely erased. Is that not a scary thought? To have no recollection and no identity of who you are, just to have your total identity erased. Now, some of you are going, sounds pretty good to me. I'm going to pray for you. Can I tell you something? You do have an identity in Christ that is far more than you could ever imagine. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to steal your identity. He's trying to erase it from your memory banks. He's trying to help you not realize who you are in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you that there is a spiritual war going on around your identity? And if you don't know this, you really need to understand this. Satan himself cannot create anything. Only God creates. God is the creator. Satan has never created even a stick. He can only pervert, destroy, and distort. So what's it like? What's he want to do? He wants, he wants to hurt God. But because God is so powerful, Satan can never hurt God. Well, if you can't hurt God, you go after his kids. How many of you have kids? How many of you ever had a papa bear or a mama bear moment? You know what I'm talking about? I wasn't going to tell this story again, but I think I will. It's a fun one. I was down at Chick-fil-A in Timonium years ago with my son, Zachary. He went into the stall because he was old enough to finally go in the stall in the bathroom. We walked in there together, you know, and uh, I was, you know, doing my thing over here. And um, so uh, there was a guy, and I heard this guy talking, and he was talking in kind of a rough voice. And he, and he started kind of, hey, what are you doing? And Zach's like, Dad. He says this in this like little boy voice. And I'm like, holy crap, someone's after my kid. And so I, I ran. And then just in this craze, I kicked the door into the stall. And the dude was on the john talking on his phone. <laughs> and my son was in the next stall. And can I tell you something? If that dude wasn't doing what he was already doing, he would have been doing it after I kicked that door down. Like, it was, it was a moment of absolute adrenaline. And I was, like, completely humiliated. And I, I pulled the door shut, and I said something like, have a nice day. And I, I, I grabbed my kid, and I ran out with him in tow. Now, I remember that story because I remember the adrenaline. When somebody goes, look, you can mess with me all you want, but you mess with my kid, you better watch out. And yet I am a sinful, broken, fallen man. How much more passionate is God for you? How much more passionate is God for you? Look, you have an enemy, but God is your Father in heaven. And he is the one who protects you, but that enemy, he wants to destroy you. He wants to kind of wreck your life. Now look, he can't keep you from heaven if you're in Christ Jesus. You are already bought back, redeemed at a price. You are God's child. And he can't change that. But what he can do is hurt you and render you ineffective by keeping you blind to who you are in Christ. Because who you are in him is an identity that is sure because of his deep and abiding love for you. What are the tools that Satan uses to try and blind you to your identity? Number one, the opinion of other people. How many people around you have an opinion of you? Every single one of them. How many of them readily share it with you? Those that are closest to you. Is that opinion of you always uplifting? Is that opinion of you always in line with who you are in Christ? I would venture a guess that it's not. How about unhealed hurt and pain in your life? Past memories that you haven't really dealt with and they kind of keep you from understanding who you are. How about past failures? How about past successes? So many of us are living in our past and Jesus says, I am. I am. He doesn't say I was. He doesn't say I'm going to be. He says I am. I want you to live in the present moment with me. And yet so many of us are still living out of past failures or past successes. You know the guy. He was the captain of the football team. He, he was the guy who ran every touchdown. Or he was a quarterback, man. He could wail that ball downfield. 
Maybe she was the gal, I don't know, she was like top cheerleader or she played music in an incredible way. Whatever it was, that guy or that gal, they had tremendous success and then they got into the world and they realized that not everybody was going to respond to them like they were the star quarterback. And it hurts. Why? Because your house is built on shifting sand. How about the media and the culture? Do you know you are being programmed every day by the media and the culture? Why? So you can be more like this person, or you can act more like that person, or you can dress more like this, or you can speak like this, or you can eat these kinds of foods, or you can drink these kinds of drinks, or you can have those kinds of friends. You see, Satan wants to put thoughts in your minds in order to keep you from knowing your true identity. But when God puts a thought in your mind, that's called divine inspiration. You see, God comes to us through his spirit, through his word, and through his people, through his creation, and he speaks to us, this is who you are. So when God puts that thought in your mind, that's divine inspiration. When Satan puts a thought in your mind, that's called worldly temptation or evil temptation. When you put a thought in your own mind, that's just called stupidity. The Bible has another word for it. It's called foolishness. Listen to Proverbs 25, 15. Stupid people always think that they're right. Wise people listen to advice. I want you to listen to my advice this morning. Because you are living with programming in your brain that tells you every day who you think you are. And I will guarantee you that the vast majority of that dialogue has to do with what you do or what you don't do. How you dress or what you look like. How do I know this? I've talked to enough of you, and I live in my own head. And the problem is, we think we're right. But can I tell you something? In Christ Jesus, you could not be more wrong. Your identity is not based on what you do, more or less anything you don't do. It's based solely on the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. You've been programmed here on planet Earth to believe your identity is based on what you do. And can I tell you what, the, what we call that? That's called legalism. That's called religion. And religion and legalism are exhausting. Why? Because you're always trying to do the dance of adaptivity to figure out what it's going to take to be accepted by the people around you or even by God. So I'm going to try and become who you want me to become so that you will like me and then I will finally feel secure in my own soul. The problem is you are incredibly finicky, just like me. And so when I try and kind of put my chips in your court, when I try and come to you and say, will you please validate who I am? Will you please show me that I'm accepted? Can I dance a little faster for you? Can I look a particular way for you? Can I play out your script in such a way that you finally will love me? The truth of the matter is, you can't love me the way that I want to be loved. You can't love me the way that I need to be loved. And the truth of the matter is, if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't need to do any of that for him to love. You've been programmed here on planet Earth, and in your brain are neural networks that have been developed by the things that you have learned. All of us, this is true. Now, some of these neural networks are just little rabbit paths. Others of them are eight-line highways where traffic flows unimpeded back and forth because you have had a built-in process over time to learn things that you believe. One of the things we're going to talk about today is acceptance and rejection. How many of you have ever been rejected? Raise your hand or check your pulse, one or the other. See, these eight-line highways, they tell you things like, act like that person does and you'll be loved. Choose a career that others will see in high regard. Then you'll have value. Oh, attend a prestigious school. Then people will know how much you're worth. Try to look prettier. No one could ever love someone who looks like you. Lose weight. Then you'll be accepted. Oh, and by the way, you've achieved some measure of worldly success. Now you're loved by the people around you. Can I tell you something? All of these are lies from the pit of hell. And these messages and countless more all produce one of two responses in order to gain or obtain acceptance from the world around us. The first one is this. We either work harder. We work harder to gain that acceptance, either from God or from the people around us, just to gain that acceptance and security that we long for in our heart. Or two, we just give up and crawl in a hole. That's called fight and flight. 
And you're going to, if you really believe this stuff, which I know you all do, I know everybody believes this, already somewhere inside of you believe you have to dance hard enough and look a particular way to be accepted, you're going to work harder or you're going to give up. And either way, Satan is going to be working in you to erase your true identity. I can't steal it from you, but he can keep you unaware of it. And what you need to do is have a habit of going to God to hear from Him so you can rest in who you are in Him. Because if not, you'll just keep thinking you're right when you're wrong. We all believe this stuff to some extent, and the fruit of these lies is exhaustion for our souls and ineffectiveness for Christ. And it will take nothing short of divine intervention to change the way that you think. But by God's grace, that's exactly what God did through Jesus Christ. He intervened in a divine way through his son Jesus on the cross. And now we have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the one who will lock you. See, Jesus came to set the captives free from this kind of junk. And this stuff will keep you in bondage. I can guarantee you it will. Why? Because I've been working on this for 30-some years now. Can I tell you something? I was so bound by what was called a performance-based identity, a worldly identity. So God brings his spirit to his word, and he speaks to us. So today, we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. If you'd be kind enough to join me and open up to that. It's not in your booklet. I apologize for that. But if you have a phone or a Bible, open up. If not, you'll just have to trust me to get it right, okay? I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through 10, but we are going to be focusing on verses 9 and 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation to be an oak of righteousness. That's my little insert. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. That's Jesus. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined to do. But listen, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. Now, look, in the Scripture, the New Testament alone, the phrase in Christ is used over 75 times. In Christ, this is true. In Christ, this is true. In Christ, this is true. If you are in Christ, you have a new identity. And I believe in these verses, there are five ID markers, just like you have five fingerprints. Most of us have five fingerprints, right? Five ID markers in Christ that we will find to help us identify who we are in Him. Here's the first one. Say this with me. In Him, I am completely accepted. Say that with me. In Him, I am completely accepted. Look, you have been chosen by God Himself. Boy, I really wish I could read these scriptures. There we go. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight by his love. Jesus treated us so much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God, and he gave us the hope of eternal life. You are 100% completely accepted by God. Now, why is this important? Well, because this is the mother of all issues. Okay, this is what all psychologists say. They say issues of acceptance and rejection are the mother of all issues. All of us have wounds in life, and some of your deepest wounds come from rejection. Because all of us have been rejected, some of us by our family, some of us by our friends. Maybe it was at school on the playground, maybe it was work, no matter where it's been, all of us 
have tasted the bitter sadness of being rejected by others. Matter of fact, social scientists say that this is the greatest of all fears, the fear of rejection. Last week I told you that public speaking was probably one of the number one fears that people have. But can I tell you that it's really not public speaking that people are afraid of? It's the fear of being rejected. See, if I really lay it out before you, if I really tell you my ideas and my thoughts and what's in me, maybe you won't like it. And then what does that mean for me? See, if you're afraid of speaking publicly, you're not really afraid of speaking publicly. You're afraid of being rejected. And the fear of rejection will cause you to do all kinds of crazy things. The need to be accepted by people around you will cause you to do all kinds of nutso stuff. How many of you lived through the 70s? How many of you survived the 70s? Some are like, well, kind of. Can I tell you what I used to wear in the 70s? I used to wear green velvet hip-hugger elephant bottoms. If I had a picture, I would not show you. These things sat right here on my hips. They started at the knee, and they flared out like that. That thing was probably that big at the bottom. And I'd walk around like this, like this. I had a polyester shirt on with that that did not button below my sternum. And it had these wide things here, and I prayed for chest hair. You know? So I'm walking around with those green velvet hip-hugger elephant bottoms and my chest hanging out of that with a gold chain around there. Now you laugh when I laugh because you think, that was ridiculous. Why did I dress like that? You know why? Because I wanted to be accepted. Everybody else was dressing that way, at least a lot of people around me, and I wanted to look cool. You know, I wanted people to say, hey, dude. Hey, dude. I was hanging out with a guy recently who's from the area I grew up in. And, you know, we used to just crack jokes about Philly boys because I was kind of in the Philadelphia area. And, you know, here's the thing. Like, you could be a complete mess, like, in your clothing, but your hair always had to be perfect. It had to be parted in the middle and feathered on the sides. Anybody remember that? Now, look, I got nothing to do that with anymore. <laughs> I was with this dude who's my age, and he's from my region, and I, I, I took him, you still got the Philly haircut. The guy had it, like, part in the middle and fed it on the sides. I'm like, dude, I, I like, envy you. Not really. It's passe. But look, look, think about this. What did you do to be accepted? What do you do now to be accepted? How much energy do you spend trying to be accepted you already are. Do you ever have mom or dad say, well, just because your friends jumped off a cliff, would you do it? Anybody ever hear him say that? The answer for me is yes. Yes, I did. I did some crazy stuff growing up because my friends were doing it. Stuff I didn't even want to do. And yet I did it because I wanted to fit in. Remember pain on the playground? Or gym class. You remember wearing gym shorts? Oh my gosh. That was horrifying. Remember when they would line you up and somebody would have to choose teams and they'd draw captains? All right, Billy, you're a captain. Susie, you're a captain. All right, come up here. Everybody else is standing on the wall. Pick your teams. Billy's up there. Jimmy, Susie's up there. Susie. Yeah, and you keep going and keep going and keep going. And you're like, pick me, 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 pick me. You just want to like shout that, choose me, choose me. Because you know if you get chosen in the first two or three, then you're going to feel real good. If it starts getting in the middle of the pack, you're like, well, okay, I'm kind of average. But if you're like those of us who were like on the tail end of it, you were left with some stuff, were you not? You didn't really saunter over to your captain. You kind of sulked over to your captain. Because you were his last choice. You weren't chosen, you just kind of came with the deal. Well, I guess I'll take Jeff. That's all that's left, I guess I'll take Jeff. Can I tell you something? God is never that way towards you. You have been chosen by God. You are His chosen holy people. If you are in Christ, Jesus, before He created the world, said, that one is mine. He chose you. He chose you. And that helps you to understand something. 
that you have been accepted by God, not based on anything that you've done, more or less anything you haven't done. You've been accepted by God because he chose you and because he's like that. He loves you. Now look, I, I have to help you understand something, and I know I've used this illustration in the past, but it's one way that I measure our maturity as a body. So please hang with me, because it helps me get this message into your head and into mine. How many of you think you're just as acceptable in the eyes of God as I am? How many people think you're just as acceptable in the eyes of God as Billy Graham? How many of you think that you are just acceptable in the eyes of God and hold on to your seats as the Apostle Paul? All right, now, now we're getting down to brass tacks because this is the one that blows our wigs. How many of you think you are just as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God as Jesus Christ? Now look, some of you raised your hand immediately. Others of you kind of went like this, waiting for a lightning strike. And others of you are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'll tell you something. I still struggle to answer that question to the affirmative. I am just as righteous in the eyes of God and acceptable to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was perfect. But can I tell you something? If you struggle to answer that question, yes, 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 with a resounding yes, you are in part basing God's acceptance of you on your performance. If in your gut you wrestle with that and you kind of go, I'm not as acceptable as Jesus. You don't understand fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message that he gave us. He became sin that we now have become the righteousness of God. It is the exchanged identity. Jesus says, I'm going to become you so you can become me. And now you are accepted completely by God. You are just as righteous in the eyes of God as Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with anything you do, more or less anything you don't do. It has to do with what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. If you let that message in, you start going, oh my gosh, this is scandalous love. How can I be so accepted by God? Now look, it doesn't stop there. It continues to go on because some people are accepted, but they're not really liked. You ever been that, well, you know, you gotta let, you've been accepted to so-and-so. And you're like, yeah, well, I'm not sure they really like me very much. But they've accepted me. So some of us have the picture of God that says, yes, he accepts me, but he doesn't like me very much. He accepts me, but he's kind of like my mom or dad. You know, he kind of stands with his arms folded and occasionally looks over his shoulder and kind of makes a ticking noise. Can't believe him or her. Can I tell you something? That's not who God is. You see, not only you are accepted, but you are extremely valuable to God. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, his treasured possession. Can you say that after me? I am his treasured possession. Look at the birds. God feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can I tell you, if anybody is on God's welfare system, it is birds. It's true. I mean, what do they do? They just kind of tweet and poop a lot. <laughs> and yet he says, like, you are so much more valuable than the birds to me. And yet I care for them and give them everything they need. I love them. But you, oh, you're, you're the crown of my creation. You're so precious to me. You know, um, being valuable is better than being accepted, that's for sure. If you've ever looked at inquiring things of antiquity, old stuff or things that you collect and you get online and you kind of do a search for these things, you'll find that they often listen to conditions. The first condition is acceptable. The next condition often is fair. The next condition is good. The next condition is fine. And if you find something really, really good, like, like new, it's very fine, very fine. You're not just acceptable, you are very fine. Can you turn to your neighbor and just say, you are mighty fine. You're mighty fine. Now, I mean that in the right way. See, in Christ, you are extremely valuable. You are holy. You have great value to God. Now, let's go through this. What makes something valuable? Here's the first thing. Who owns it? This is my pair of older running shoes. I use these to cut the lawn. Anybody want to buy them from me? How much do you offer me? How much? Two dollars? Anybody? Three? Three. Back there. Three. Four? Do I hear four? Five. Five. Awesome. Praise God. Five. 
Now look, we started kind of low and we got up to five. Now what if I told you these were LeBron James shoes? How much now? A dollar. <laughs> There's an enlightened man. Okay? <laughs> you blew my illustration, but you got, you got the point. So if I said these were LeBron James shoes and I could prove it to you, guess what? Exponentially, the price would go up. Why? Because somebody who we hold in high regard owns this. Now look, if I listed my car to Facebook to sell it, hopefully I'd get some good, you know, maybe a fair price for it on Facebook Marketplace. But if I was able to say and prove that that car belonged to Lady Gaga or Justin Bieber, the price would go way up. People would be willing to pay a whole lot more because who it belongs to. So here's my question. If you are in Christ Jesus, who do you belong to? Who is your owner? You could say this, I am owned by the King of Kings. I am owned by the Lord of Lords. And because you are owned by God, you are extremely valuable. You see, you weren't at one point owned by God. You were born in the sinful world as a sinner in need of salvation. You were owned by the devil. And Jesus Christ bought you back. He came to you and he wooed you to himself with his love. He revealed himself to you through his spirit. You only stepped from death to life because he wanted you more than you wanted him. He chose you. And now you belong to him. You are his precious possession. You are his treasure. You are his masterpiece. And that determines your worth and value because of who you belong to. God never looks at you and says, oh no, I created that person you got to be kidding me. What in the world was I thinking? He never says stuff like that. No, Isaiah 43 says, you are precious to me. Now look, in Christ, God is not only your owner, he's your father. You're in his family. So look at the birds of the air. God feeds them. You're far more valuable than they are. Look, it shows more valuable if you're in somebody's family. We've already talked about that a little bit, but you're now God's kid. You can walk around and say, I'm just God's daughter. I'm, I'm God's son. I'm a son of the most high God. I'm a daughter of the most high God. And that shows your value alone. You know what really shows your value? That Jesus Christ was willing to give his life for you. Some people live with messages in their head like this. I'm worthless. I'm just nothing. I'm just a fat, worthless nothing. I'm just a piece of junk. You know, we identify our identity with the things that we do wrong sometimes or the diseases even that we have. I remember sitting with this guy once and he came into my office a long time ago when I did a lot of counseling. He sat down and introduced himself. He said, hi, I'm, I'm Bob. I'm a bipolar schizophrenic alcoholic. And I said, well, how are you feeling about yourself, Bob? He said, not very good. Now, look, he, those things are probably true about maybe some of the diagnosis he said. That's not who he is. That's not who he is. I ended up having a conversation with him, and he was in Christ. And part of what I had to help him understand was that none of those things defined him. Look, some of us define ourselves by our vocations. You know, you go to a party and you hang out with people, and the first question they ask you, well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I'm a plumber. Well, I'm an air aircraft liner pilot. I'm a... you, know, you fill in the blank, and you define your identity based on how you feel about your vocation. Your vocation is not who you are. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are a son of the Most High God. You are a daughter of the Most High God. Now look, when you talk to yourself and you say things like, I'm worthless, I have no value, I'm just no good, I'm a piece of junk, do you know what you're doing? You're making Jesus Christ out to be a fool. You know why? Because only a fool would give his life for something that was not worth it. You know, you didn't do anything to deserve it. That's clear. But you are worth it. You know why? Jesus Christ said you were worth it. How? He died on a cross for you. So what determines worth? First, who owns it? The second thing is, is what somebody is willing to pay for it. So look, if I were to take this out right here and tell you that this is a penny. And this is a 1944 steel wheat penny. This is the rarest penny available right now in the whole country. You might go online and you'd say, Oh my gosh, that penny's worth $110,334. This is what it says on the internet. But I can tell you that's really not what it's worth. 
You know what this penny would be worth, even if it wasn't 1944 steel wheat penny? It's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Do you think you know how much your house is worth? No, you don't. You know why? Because it's probably worth far less than you think it's worth. You're hoping, about, oh, the house is going to be worth this. I've sold enough houses to know this. Your house is probably not worth as much as you think it is. You know what your house is worth? What the market will bear. What does that mean? It's only worth as much as somebody is willing to pay for it, not a penny more. Joe, here's a penny for you. It's a 1974. It's, 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 it's worth a penny, my friend. That's all it's worth. Now look, who owns it and what somebody's willing to pay for it? You want to know how much you're worth? Look at that cross. Look at the cross. You want to know how much you're worth? You want to know how much somebody is willing to pay for you? God became flesh. He walked our side. He took on human form. He took on human limitations. And he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to die for you. That's how valuable you are. You've heard of ransom before, have you not? Have you not, when somebody's taken captive and they call the parents or they call the concerned parties and they say, we want $500,000 or your child is going to be killed. We want $1 million. We want $10 million. We want $100 million. Can I tell you what the greatest ransom ever paid was? It's right there on that cross. The greatest ransom ever paid for love was what Jesus Christ did for you and for me on that cross. He bought you back with his blood. He gave his very life for you. And that shows you how much you're worth to him. So not only are you 100% completely accepted in God, you are so valuable to God. One, because he owns you. And two, because he bought you back with his very blood. You need to understand these things and let these truths go deep into your heart. So say this, I am accepted. I am valuable. And say this, I am loved. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. You've got to understand something. Love on planet Earth is not like God's love. God's love is amazing, and God's love has two components to it that you will not find outside of a relationship with him. Here's the first one. It is absolutely unconditional. God's love is not, you've got to get this into your head, because if you don't get this into your head, you're going to get sucked off into the performance mentality once again. You will. I promise you will. Because Satan will come and he'll try and blind you to the truth of who you are. But here's the first thing. It's unconditional. Here's the second thing. It's unending. It's constant. It never fades. It is forever. So God loves you unconditionally, and he loves you forever. Say this. God loves me unconditionally. Say this. God loves me forever. So look, unconditional. It's not, I love you if you pray. I love you if you do good things. I love you if you please me. I'm not going to love you if you're not a nice person. I'm not going to love you unless you go to church. I'm going to love you only if you tithe. I'm going to love you because you help the poor. I'm going to love you because, 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 if, 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 if. No, with God, it is never an if, and it's never a but, and it's never a because. He says, I love you. Now, some of us have an incredibly hard time accepting this truth. I have a hard time accepting it. You know why? Because rarely here on planet Earth have you ever experienced unconditional love. Some of you are going, oh, I, I unconditionally loved my children. Did you really? Did you really, Mom? Did you really, Dad? Well, I unconditionally love my spouse. Do you really? Can I talk to them for a few minutes? <laughs> my parents unconditionally loved me. Did they really did they really? Look, I grew up in a good family, but a broken family. I grew up in a family that's had a lot of problems, but I grew up in a family that had two parents who loved Jesus Christ. I praise God for that. But can I tell you something? They were good parents, but they were not perfect parents. There's only one perfect parent. It's God. Every other parent fails. Everybody here on earth, they'll love you only so long. Remember when you were in junior high school? Anybody even want to remember junior high school? 
I should have said that. And I'm like, I don't think I want to remember junior high school. I'll love you if you love me. You send a little note, you know, to your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Love you if you love me. I love you if you please me. I love you if you go to the prom with me. I love you if you go to bed with me. That's not love. That's lust. I, I love you if. I love you if is conditional love. That's not real love. That's not agape love. That's not the love of God. You read a note to your sweetheart, even when you were kind of courting them. I love you because you're so beautiful. What happens when she's not beautiful anymore? Can I tell you something? Beauty is fleeting. Anybody say amen to that? Now, look, you're beautiful in your own way, but I can tell you that many of you have already lost it. I mean, Look, I got to say this. I'm not the burning hunk of love I once was either. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, Tracy says I'm sexy, but she knows she has to say that. I mean, like, you know. But really, if I say that I love you for your beauty, and then you get older, and I think old people are beautiful, but they're just not beautiful the way they were before, what happens then? I love you because you meet all my needs. Well, what happens when that person can't meet your needs? Do you stop loving them? I love me because you, you, because you support me. Well, what happens if they become disabled and they can't support you anymore? What happens if they can't do the things that you want them to do? That's called conditional love. God's love is not like that. He says, I love you because you do all these things for me. That's not love. That's selfishness. No, God says, I love you, Period. I love you in spite of yourself. I love you regardless of what you do for me. I love you when you fail, and I love you when you succeed. I love you when everybody else doesn't. I love you. That's my love for you. That's the kind of love I have for you. It's unconditional. It's unending, and it's consistent. God is not fickle. He isn't unpredictable. He doesn't have bad hair days. He isn't moody. He doesn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. God loves you because that's who God is. He's love. Unstable parents create unstable children. Insecure parents create insecure children. But your father's not like that. He's not unstable and he's not insecure. So you're his child. Guess what? You can rest in his love. Why? Because it's unconditional and it never ends. You never need to ask, is God going to love me today? Did I pray enough? Did I do this enough? Did I tell somebody about Jesus? Did I buy that person a big enough gift? Did I help somebody? Did I hold my temper? Did I stop cussing? Some of us would be in real trouble. You never have to say, is God going to love me today? Listen, you can never stop making God love you. God's never going to love you one ounce more than he does right now, no matter what. And he's never going to love you one ounce less than he does right now, no matter what. Why? Because God is love. Why am I eternally loved? Because God's love. The reason I'm eternally loved is because of who he is. If you take God out of the picture, then there is no love. And guess what? His character is never going to change. So his love for you isn't going to change either. It always remains the same. Psalm 105 says God's love is eternal and his faithfulness lasts forever. Even though you're unfaithful to him, he will never be unfaithful to you. So I'm completely accepted. Say that. I'm completely accepted. I'm extremely valuable. And I'm eternally loved. Now say this after me. I'm totally forgiven. Listen to what the scripture says. At one time you did not know God's mercy, but now you have received his mercy. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 43.25, I am the God who forgives your sins, and I do this because of who I am. I will not hold your sins against you. And listen to Ephesians 1, and by the blood of Christ we are set free. That is, our sins have been forgiven. Say that last line with me, how great is the grace of God. You're going to say that in a whole different way in a moment. Why do we have a hard time receiving the forgiveness of God? Because again, the people around us do not forgive the way that God forgives. We don't forgive ourselves the way that God forgives us. You see, what most people do is they'll say something like, I forgive you, and then they'll take your offense and your sinfulness and they'll tuck it away in a little box called saved for later. 
And then what happens is that when, when the things get heated up, when, when the relational warfare begins again, they take out those things in that box called save for labor that they've saved up as accumulated ammunition, and then they pull them out, and they say things like, do you remember when? Do you remember when you did that? Do you remember when you failed me? Do you remember when you had that affair 20 years ago? Remember when you actually charged up our credit cards and ran us into financial debt? Do you remember when you did that? Can I tell you something? God is not like that. You know how I know? The scripture says it. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, Love keeps no record of wrongs. When you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you remember when I did that? He goes, remember what? What are you talking about? He's like, well, remember when I failed you that way? Oh, gosh, we're way past that. Come on, let's just keep going. I love you. I love you. You're forgiven. Completely washed away. Isn't it crazy when someone actually forgives you without any strings attached? You've been around somebody like that and you've done something really that hurt them or whatever, and you go, please forgive me, and they go, oh, you're completely forgiven. Let's go out and have a cup of coffee. What? You don't want to hold it against me? Nah, no interest in that. Why? Well, because I've been forgiven this way. You see, forgiven people forgive people. Say that. God's forgiveness means that he took away all of your sins and he nailed them to the cross. Past, present, and future. Jesus did not come to rub in your sins. He came to rub them out. Listen to what it says in the word. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has separated you, your identity, from your transgressions. Son of God, daughter of God, I have great news for you today. You are no longer what you do. You're not, you're not what you don't do. You're defined by the fact that you are his child alone and you are 100% forgiven. Now, some of you go, I don't really feel like I'm 100% forgiven. I feel guilt all the time. Can I tell you, if you're in Christ Jesus and if you've asked for his forgiveness as a sinner and he's come into your life, when you feel that wave or if you're in long-term guilt, that's called toxic shame. And that is not of God. Now, the enemy will try and poke you and prod you all the time to try and get you filled with shame about who you are so you're constantly feeling guilty. But in the name of Jesus, I want you to understand something. That's not what the forgiveness of God does for you. You go, oh my gosh, I'm forgiven. And you're able to walk in life and light like you had never had before. So say this with me. I'm totally accepted. I'm extremely valuable. I'm eternally loved, and I'm completely forgiven. We're going to look at the fifth marker when I invite the team to come out here. In Him I can trust. Now look, next week we're going to transition to the next part, which is we're going from rest to risk. Now look, we don't, we don't stop resting when we take risks. We actually rest while we're resting. We actually walk in faith while we're resting in who God is, his promises, his providence, his presence, his person. We rest in him while we risk. But this scripture declares that you are a priest. If you are in Christ, you are a member of the royal priesthood. What does a priest do? He represents man to God. What does that mean? You intercede and you pray to God for those around you. You pray for the region. You pray for the nation. You pray for the world. You actually lift up others to God. What's it mean? It also means you represent God to man. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. You guys can come forward. That's okay. You represent God to man. That means you trust him and you take radical risks to love people in extravagant ways for the cause of Christ. If somebody were to ask you, how many priests do you have at Grace Fellowship Church? Your answer should be somewhere around 12 to 1,500. Really? Yeah, why? Because we don't have membership here. We have something called a ministry team. Every member is a minister. Every minister is a servant. Every minister is called by God. Every minister is a priest. Every minister has a vocation. You know what the word vocation means in Latin? It means voice. You have been given a voice. A voice to worship God, a voice to call out to others, a voice to say to them, you are loved, you're forgiven, you're valuable, you can trust him. He died for you. Acts 26, 18 says this, you are to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. 
so that through their faith in me, they will have their sins forgiven and also, like you, will receive their place among God's chosen people. That's our calling, man. That's what God calls us to do. So today, we get to celebrate communion together. I put in your book a little meditation. I'd like us to read this out loud together, please, now. Let's read this. Because of what Jesus did for me at the cross, today and right now, I have nothing to prove. In him, I have nothing to fear. I am already accepted and loved. I am secure forever in Christ Jesus. Today and right now, I can trust him. I can slow down. I can breathe. I can enjoy this moment and day with him. Because Jesus has made me righteous, I can walk in the stillness, the quietness, and confidence of his presence today. Lord God, we thank you for what you've done for us at the cross. We thank you, Lord, if we ever have to wonder how much we're worth, all we need to do is look at the cross. Thank you for your willingness to die for us. We pray now, Lord, that as we prepare to take these sacraments together. We ask that you would help our hearts to be filled with gratitude for what you've done and for who you are. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.